Hello, and welcome to the Interesting Bits podcast with me, Justin Pollard. The Interesting Bits is a weekly attempt to delve into the stories of some of history's underdogs, the forgotten majority who never became historical celebrities, but played their part nonetheless. It's designed as an antidote to the big narratives of wars and politicians which dominate history books and which suggests that history has some sort of overall point. The truth is, history doesn't have a grand direction. It wanders around, often drunk, frequently bumping into things, and usually eschewing anything that might look like progress for another sustained period in full reverse. So the interesting bits is here to tell the stories of the mad, bad, stupid, wonderful, odd and improbable things that happened to our ancestors. It is simply for the odd moment when a small fragment recovered from the treasure chest of our past might entertain you. You can listen to all of it, or some of it, in any order, it makes no real difference, and take each story as seriously or as lightly as you may. It is the audio equivalent of a box of chocolates, a mixture of historical delicacies, stories, events, facts, and a few salacious rumours, which will go no way whatsoever towards helping you pass your GCSE history exam. They have no greater meaning, no direction, no overarching theme beyond being, I hope, worthy of note, perhaps even memorable and reminding us that the past was as daft as the present, and the people of the past were as daft as us. That's what actually links us. For this Christmas edition of The Interesting Bits, we'll be looking at why Good King Wenceslas wasn't necessarily good, or a king, or called Wenceslas, and how an accident on a battleship led to the creation of one of the world's most popular toys. For all its peace and goodwill, Christmas has had a rather chequered history. Early Christians don't seem to have bothered with it at all, there being no mention of any celebration before the appearance of a book called The Chronography of 354, written, not surprisingly, in 354 AD, or CE if you prefer your date secular. Bah, humbug! Even then, you'd be wrong to think everybody celebrated the same thing at the same time. In the Eastern Roman Empire, they preferred Epiphany, on the 6th of January, and the debate as to when to crack open the eggnog was still raging in Britain 462 years later, until the Synod of Chelsea decided to adopt Christmas as an official holiday. This replaced what Bede tells us had previously been a pagan solstice festival of Mother's Night. For the Anglo-Saxons, Christmas Day still wasn't a big celebration, however, but rather a day for quiet contemplation, at the start of a 12-day period culminating in an enormous party on Twelfth Night. It took some excellent royal PR and the High Middle Ages to really get Christmas going. Charlemagne's choice of Christmas Day for his coronation started a trend followed by William the Conqueror, who hence felt it should be a party day. The scope of the festival was also dramatically increased. The fun now began 40 days beforehand on the Feast of St Martin of Tours in a Christmas countdown we now know as Advent, while the decorations were kept up until Candlemas on the 2nd of February, making most of the winter part of Christmas. You can imagine how this huge communal drinking festival went down with the Puritans during the Civil War. In short, they banned it leading to rather festive pro-Christmas riots. At the Restoration, it was promptly restored, except in Scotland, where it didn't become a public holiday again until 1958. In the 19th century, Christmas was remodelled as a time for families. 
It is from this era that our modern festival largely derives, as framed by Charles Dickens, whose memories of his own snowy childhood Christmases at the tail end of the Little Ice Age have influenced countless millions of Christmas cards, and whose coining of the phrase Merry Christmas in A Christmas Carol would seem to mark the perfect point to wish you all the same. Firstly, it should be noted that Wenceslas, or Vaclav as he was actually known, wasn't really a king at all, but a Duke of Bohemia. It was only the Holy Roman Emperor Otto I who posthumously gave him the regal dignity, making things rather confusing, as there was also a real King Wenceslas I of Bohemia in the 13th century. So, was he good? This comes down largely to what is perceived as Christian or pagan, Vaclav was a Christian, as had been his father, Vratislav I, and his grandmother, St Ludmilla, who brought up the young prince after his father's death. Ludmilla was strangled on the orders of Vaclav's mum, Drahomira, who hence had been seen as bad and a pagan, although there's not an iota of evidence to suggest she was. Then there was Boleslav, Vaclav's brother. On the negative side, he did arrange the murder of his brother so he could take the throne. Hagiographies of Wenceslas claim that this was because he was a pagan and hated his brother's religion. This is also highly doubtful, as Boleslav as duke seems to have encouraged the growth of Christianity, asking the Pope to make Prague a bishopric. His daughter, Mlada, was even a nun, and his son and heir was known as Boleslav the Pious. In truth, the murder probably had much more to do with Wenceslas's pro-Holy Roman attitude that was making Bohemia just another province of the empire. Certainly the first thing Boleslav did after his brother's death was go to war with the empire. Wenceslas, the duke who threatened to destroy Bohemian identity, rather ironically went on to become the patron saint of his people. As for the carol itself, things are no less confusing here. Although nominally a Christmas hymn, the Feast of St Stephen is on Boxing Day, and the tune to which John Mason Neal set his lyrics is a 13th century spring carol, Temper Adest Floridum, it's time for flowering. Nor did Neil write the carol in the frozen wastes of Bohemia, but in East Grinstead. It was December 1945 when Richard James walked into Gimbel's department store in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, armed only with a wooden board and 400 small, paper-wrapped packages. In the toy department, he was shown to his demonstration stand, where he set his board on a slope, opened one of the packets his wife had so carefully wrapped the night before, and tentatively began his demonstration. Outside, and unknown to Richard, his wife Betty and a friend were preparing to become his first customers, in the hope that an initial sale or two might encourage the others. They just hoped they weren't his only customers, as, dollar bills in hand, they plunged into the throng. The idea that Richard James, a naval engineer, was hoping to sell that day, had come to him during the war, in 1943, when he'd been working at Philadelphia's Cramp shipyard. He had been tasked with devising damping equipment to mount sensitive horsepower meters in the engine rooms of battleships, and was experimenting with arrangements of torsion springs. During one of these experiments, he'd casually knocked one of these springs off the table, and noticed something odd. Instead of just falling to the floor in a heap, the spring rolled end on end, almost walking off the table onto the floor. Now James was something of an inventor. 
Indeed, his was probably the only home in Philadelphia with ice-cold coke on tap, courtesy of the compressor he'd installed to pump the drink from the cellar straight into the fridge. As such, his wife was not surprised when he came home saying he thought he might have invented a wonderful new toy. Suspicious, yes, but not surprised. Undeterred, James set to work looking for a steel with correct properties which could be coiled to the right tension to make a walking spring. When he showed his prototype to his neighbour's children, even Betty was persuaded by their enthusiasm, and they decided to go into business. With a £500 loan, they set up the grandly named James Industries, spending most of the money having 400 springs made at a local machine shop. The rest went on single-colour printed sheets of instructions, which Betty would wrap around the spring to form its only packaging. With the 400 springs wrapped and ready to go, all they needed was a name for their toy. After scouring the dictionary for hours, Betty found a word meaning stealthy, sleek and sinuous, which seemed to fit the bill. The word was, as you've guessed by now, slinky. That was what had brought naval engineer Richard to the toy department at Gimbel's and Betty to the doorway where she was even then preparing to pretend to be an eager customer. But as Betty approached the slinky stand, she rapidly saw that fake purchases would be wholly unnecessary. The Slinky was a surprising star hit, and Richard was surrounded by real, dollar-wielding customers. In his 90-minute demonstration, he sold all 400 Slinkies, and one of the iconic toys of the 20th century was born. The following year, the Slinky was the most talked-about toy at the US Toy Trade Fair, and the Jameses opened their own shop in Philadelphia. Betty set to work upgrading their packaging to a simple box, whilst Richard used his engineering know-how to devise a machine that could coil the 80 feet of wire in a slinky into the requisite 98 coils in just under 11 seconds. By 1950, the toy was so successful, he had built another five, all of which are still operating today. But it was not all to be fairy tale endings for the Jameses. In 1960, Richard James suddenly decided to leave his business, his wife and his six children, and join what Betty called a religious cult in Bolivia. Betty, down but not out, took over the business and paid off the large debts that had arisen from her husband's lavish donations to his new Bolivian friends. Moving the toy business back to her appropriately named hometown of Holidaysburg, she not only saw off striking steel workers, but introduced new innovations such as the goggle-eyed slinky glasses, the slinky dog, made yet more famous by the Toy Story movies, and the plastic slinky. In 1998, aged 80, she finally agreed to sell the company so she could spend more time with her family. But the James's best-selling toy remains to this day the Slinky itself, whose only alteration over the past half-century have been the introduction of crimped ends for safety reasons and the transition from Swedish blue steel to a cheaper American steel. There is a Slinky in the Smithsonian. A Slinky has been in space and the toy has even been honoured with its own US Postal Service stamp. But most importantly of all, over 300 million of these simple engineering components have been sold to children across the world, contributing to many hundreds of thousands of very happy Christmases for everyone, except the grown-ups given the job of untangling the thing. That was The Interesting Bits, written and presented by Justin Pollard, with music by Constance Pollard. The show was produced by Tian Stewart-Murray.